slightly out of reach so I don't just fiddle with it for no reason. Normally, as you know, I would have things come up on the screen, but I did something rather silly yesterday, um, is that I was in Brisbane for a discipleship training thing in the place where I was staying, the car that there, but there was people who managed the keys wasn't accessible at the time, so I put my bag behind the car, ready to put it in the boot, and then when I got the car, car, car keys, I got in the car, drove off with my bag behind the car out the front of the hotel. Um, luckily, it didn't go missing, but it did have my sermon on it, as well as um, it would have been what I used to do a PowerPoint presentation. And by the grace of God, a friend of Sarah's parents who live in Brisbane are visiting their family out in Toowoomba. They're going via the hotel to collect my bag to save me three and a half hours of unnecessary travel today to go and get that. Um, but we do have a sermon, and it is the passage I didn't change last minute. But I did have to rewrite some of it. So let's come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is good. Your word is good as it's your very word given to us. It is a reflection of your character. It's also an expression of what you would desire to form within us. And Lord, we pray as we study your word this morning that it might be something that does bring about a transformative change in our life. Those we say that we are uh, children of God, that people might see something of the character of God in the way in which we live and the desires and things that we seek. Help me and help all of us by your Holy Spirit to hear, understand, be challenged and apply the things that you have given to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've realised that you don't need to really live too long in this world until you realise not everything works out the way that you thought it might work out. Sometimes you might look at a situation, weigh up all of the factors, and when you do that, you come to one very clear conclusion. This can be the only possible, wise, sensible outcome. And then the actual outcome might be something different than that. For example, it could be a job that you've applied for where there's been a criteria of what they're looking for in that person and you or somebody has applied, meets every weight of that criteria, but then for reasons unknown to us, someone who doesn't even meet half of that criteria gets the job. Now we're all familiar with the words of God spoken through the prophet Isaiah where he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And in each of the three sections that we look at in this passage, we see either people or even God do something which at first seems counterproductive for the spread of the gospel. But despite what seems counterproductive to our perception of things, actually leads to the growth of the church. Now, I've wisely not titled this sermon Three Pieces of of Knowledge or Three-Part Series of How to Grow a Church because the methods that are used here are not the go-to methods for growing a church. You're not going to put together a book based on, okay, we grow a church through division by conducting ourselves in a way different than the things that we're writing, 
or forbidding the preaching of the word. That probably would not be a good strategy for the building and growing of a church. In that sense, it is not prescriptive, this passage. It's not telling us, this is what God did on this occasion, therefore, for all times, if you want to see a church grow, you need to divide, contradict yourself, and forbid the preaching of the word. Rather, it is descriptive, meaning it describes in one particular situation how God used specific circumstances to grow the church for his glory. And that serves as a helpful warning too, as how we think about how do we interpret and understand the Bible. Because sometimes it can be a very real danger to read, particularly through narrative parts where you're just describing things that happened, and build a doctrine or a theology or a set of beliefs based upon something that might have just happened on one occasion. And the book of Acts is probably a book where that can really become a dangerous thing very quickly. For example, some might say, okay, when this person came to faith and they spoke in tongues, therefore, everyone when they come to faith must speak in tongues. You don't want to see a description of what God did on one occasion as being prescriptive of what will always happen on all occasions. We could probably spend a large time talking about different ways that could become a problem in the book of Acts. But as you read through this passage and you're thinking about the way in which God guides his people, you could be very tempted to think, is God's everyday guiding or leading of people really that mysterious? And the simple answer is no. We have God's written word, which according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 and 2 Peter 1, 3, has given us absolutely everything we need. So like 99% of the time, the majority of God's leading is simply just seeing what God has made known and applying that wisely, what God has already given. But it's interesting as we look at the passage, we see man applying wisdom and on one occasion God blessing the, the wise choices they've made and then on other occasions where they're pursuing what seems wise in their eyes and is a wise, godly thing, and God opposes that. As we think about the three sections just and the titles that I've given, we see how they seem at odds to growth. Division that leads to multiplication in verses 36 to 41 of chapter 15. Apparent or perceived hypocrisy leading to growth in the first five verses of chapter 16. And the most interesting one, forbidding the preaching of the word and the growth of the church in 6 to 10. Now last week we saw that in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas had been ministering amongst both Jews and Gentiles who'd come to faith in Jesus Christ, some people had come up from Jerusalem who had been thinking through how do people of Jewish background and those of Gentile that is not Jewish background come into the one community of faith. What do we require of them? And some of these who came out from Jerusalem said to them, unless you are circumcised, you are not saved. And further in that passage, they, they ramped it up and say, unless you're commanded to keep everything in the law of Moses, you are not saved. And so the church in Antioch thought it was wise to send Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to meet with the elders, the apostles, 
and all of the church where they discussed what do we call, what do we expect of Jewish Christians who come into this household of God's people, which is the legitimate continuation of what has been begun in the foundations of Judaism, how much does that apply? And they came to total agreement around this idea that we shouldn't place a burden on them unnecessarily. We shouldn't place a burden on them that was too burdensome for us to even carry. But the conclusion was this. Instead, we will write a letter and recommending that they avoid food sacrificed to idols, the eating of meat that had been strangled and had contained the blood, and sexual immorality. Now, while the food-related things were specific to Old Testament Jewish laws, the issue of sexual immorality was also a big thing in terms of communicating to Gentile believers because most of the surrounding Gentile religious practices involved sexual immorality as part of their worship. It was not uncommon to have temple prostitutes as part of their religious expression, so it makes sense why that was an important thing to express to them. But when it came down to some of the the food laws, it wasn't that that God was saying, these are a requirement of you to be a, a, a Christian, but because now they were forming this community of God's people from both Jewish background and Gentile background, where there had been former hostility, he's like, let's not do anything that is going to hinder bringing them together in a harmony, harmonious family of God's people. So that was the reasons why they sent forward these instructions and sent them out with Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Judas. They went back to Antioch and they were encouraged by hearing that word, uh, but also all of those continued to encourage them and teach them from the word of God. Now, where we start in verse 36, after some time, Paul's got this idea. Now, all of these churches we planted, Barnabas, how about we go back and see how they're going? Because as strong as Paul's heart is is to see people saved, he's also deeply concerned for their ongoing spiritual growth. Now some of these areas he's talking about going back to are the same areas where he suffered some great deep persecution, including where he was stoned. Since Barnabas is fully on board, he likes the idea, but he says, great, let's, how about we bring my cousin John Mark along? He was with us before, he's good bloke. And that causes a real issue between Paul and Barnabas. Now remember back from chapter 13, it just said a very basic description that that um, John Mark returned to Jerusalem. But as we see something by way of this exchange between Paul and Barnabas on this issue, surely Paul has some degree of resentment, maybe even hostility towards John Mark. Maybe in his mind, he thinks John Mark was a deserter, someone who doesn't stick with the things that he began. But whatever the, the nature of the tension was, whether it was because Barnabas it was his cousin, or whether Barnabas was more gracious than Paul and's like, let's give the guy a second go. But there was a sharp disagreement. Interesting terminology. You wonder what was the extent of this sharp disagreement? How unattractive did it get? We don't know. But what happened was that Paul and Barnabas, who'd been ministering together, divided and separated. And from a human perspective, you think, this is going to be really not good for the growth of the church. When you've got two prominent Christian leaders 
divide and separate. Not only that, two prominent Christian leaders who have been instrumental at trying to not bring people apart, but to bring Jews and Gentiles together in harmony. But what seems counterproductive from our standpoint actually was used mightily by God. You started with one missionary team of Paul and Barnabas and the end result is now you've got Paul and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark going to different areas, multiplying missionaries and according to the text, both of them are sent out and committed to the grace of God by the church there in Antioch. Some of you will be aware that there was a split at some point in the history of Eastgate over a matter of, matter of doctrine and another church was formed as a result of that split. And even though it's not in the strategy of any of the church planning networks of this is how you grow and plant churches, we can rejoice in saying that both this congregation and the other congregation are both bigger and stronger than what was the combined group at that point in time. So it's not really a path that human wisdom should or would choose. But in light of the fact that it happened, for Eastgate and for Paul and Barnabas, God used it for his glory. So Paul and Silas, they head on their way, continue to go to the next areas that, where the letter was addressed to, where they were to encourage the brothers that no, you don't need to get circumcised in order to be saved. And when he comes to Lystra, Paul encounters a man named Timothy, a name which should be quite familiar. There are two letters in the New Testament where Paul has written to Timothy. And he's introduced to someone whose mother was Jewish, his mother Eunice that we hear about in the letters to Timothy. But his father was a Greek and presumably he'd passed away by the way in which he's spoken about. Now Timothy was a man with a good reputation amongst the Christians. He, he, he had a very good standing but he was also a man who was not circumcised, being a very tense issue at this point in time in history. But from a Jewish perspective, they would think of Timothy as a child of a mixed marriage of Jew and Gentile and one who had not been circumcised as being an apostate Jew. That's how they would receive him based upon their their mindset at that point in time. And Paul desires to partner with him in ministry. Now this is going to do much harm to the reputation of Paul and his ministry if he was to take Timothy along as things were in that way. So in light of the controversy around circumcision and the the agreement of the council where it said that no, this is not necessary to circumcise someone for them to be saved, it might almost seem a little bit hypocritical that now Paul says... Okay, Timothy, we're going to circumcise you so you can come with me and you can have a ministry amongst the Jews. Now, on the surface, that seems to be hypocritical. seems to be completely contrary to this letter that Paul is going around and encouraging the churches with. But when you take a deeper look at it, it actually is in very close harmony with that letter that's being sent out. The letter's making it very clear that it's not required for one to be circumcised. But that letter also did talk about for the sake of harmony, for the sake of not causing offence and a hindrance, it suggested particular things. 
And so what Paul has in mind with Timothy is his desire is to see the gospel go forward and expand and he saw this could be a potential hindrance. And so as a result, Timothy was circumcised so that that hindrance would be taken away. When you get to verse 5 of chapter 16, we see the end result. The church was strengthened in faith and in numbers. In light of doctrine being clarified and as well as the removal of potential hindrances, growth happens within the church. It appears counterproductive to us, but in the hands of God it led to growth. Now it's one thing to talk about division leading to growth. It's another thing to talk about what seems on the surface to be hypocrisy leading to growth. But what about forbidding the preaching the word leading to growth and multiplication of the word in verses 6 to 10? Now, I imagine when you heard the reading, there were two things that really stood out to you as being odd. First being verse 6 where it says, The Holy Spirit forbid us from preaching the word in Asia. That should sound odd, shouldn't it? That the Holy Spirit would forbid the preaching of the word. And the second one is a bit further down. It says, and the spirit of Jesus stopped them going into Bithynia to preach the word. I don't think you're going to see too much Christian merchandise or shirts with with verse 6 on this. The Holy Spirit forbid preaching the word. And you can't help but ask, why? The gospel is good news. Jesus' commission was to go make disciples of all nations from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Why? Would the Holy Spirit forbid the preaching of the word in Asia? And how did Paul come to know that he had? The simple answer is, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. If it was important for us to know the all the ins and outs of the details, it would. Why would the Holy Spirit forbid the preaching? You can certainly rule out the fact that the Holy Spirit is opposed to the preaching of the gospel. But maybe age is not the next step in the plan of God at this point in time. Maybe God's got something else, which we do see that he has. But how did they know? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit forbid them? How did they come to that conclusion? Was it just because things blocked them from being, physically being able to get there and they perceived that to be the Spirit? Wasn't it inner conviction of this is not where God wants us to go? Or was it Silas who was a prophet? Did he have a prophecy that this is what the Holy Spirit was leading to? We don't know which of those, if any of those. But it does seem odd that the Holy Spirit would forbid the preaching of the word anywhere. And then to add to that, you go down a few verses later, then they try to go to Bithynia and the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. It's an interesting turn of phrase. You go from the Holy Spirit forbid them, then the Spirit of Jesus did not allow. And I don't think it's just a case of Luke thinking back to his high school grammar classes and he was told, you know, use a thesaurus, change different words, use Holy Spirit here, use Spirit of Jesus. But I think there's also an intentional emphasis that the exalted, risen Jesus Christ is still actively involved in directing the ministry of the gospel throughout the book of Acts. 
But think for a moment if you're Paul. Here you are with a ministry to take the gospel to the nations and it's God who is opposing that. And it's God who is actually hindering, at least in part of that. There's got to be times where you start thinking, am I doing the right thing? Is it, am I doing something sinful? Is there something wrong in my life that, that these doors are constantly being closed? Am I out of favour with God? Has God changed his mind? But after two doors were closed, by unusual means, one door gets opened, by also by unusual means. In verse 9, Paul receives a vision in the night, whether that's while he's awake or in the form of a dream, of a Macedonian man saying, come over to Macedonia, come to help us. And it might seem like a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction when you read to say, and immediately they went to Macedonia, convinced that God had commanded them to go preach the gospel in Macedonia. You have a dream, boom, I'll just get out of bed, off we go, let's go do that. I have some really weird dreams. And I can assure you, if I wake up every morning thinking, that means I need to do something in line with that dream, I'm going to get locked up in an institution. Not because I dream about horrific crimes or anything like that, in case you're disturbed about what sort of dreams I might have, just weird and silly things. But when you have a closer look at the text, it shows that there's more to it than just, had this dream, came to this conclusion, off I went. We read it says, and we, so now there is a group of people and we start to hear we come through the passage quite a lot from here on in, so we're presuming Luke is now also part of this group, probably Silas and Timothy, collectively this group of Christians concluded, so Paul has obviously explained to them the nature of this dream or this vision, and collectively, they have concluded that what God was communicating was to go take the gospel to Macedonia. It wasn't Paul just acting on his own, I had this dream, let's all go. Collectively, as they heard the vision shared, this was the conclusion that they together reached. Now, unfortunately, I've heard far, far, far too many stories of people who say, I had a vision, I had a dream, therefore I did this. And a lot of those times, it is so blaringly obvious that it wasn't God. It was so contrary to God's revealed nature, God's revealed will, that you wouldn't touch it with 10-foot barge pole. You know, I don't know how it came in your mind, whether it's your flesh or something else, that wasn't God. <laughs> and therefore what you did wasn't, wasn't a good idea. Every dream and thought I have is not God telling me something? Otherwise, God's got a very, very weird sense of humour. And while God can and does still use visions and dreams, it's not common or regular or his primary means by which he directs his people. For the majority of Christians, they'll go for their entire Christian life and never experience anything like it. I haven't. But throughout the book of Acts, you do see there are occasions where key moments and with key particular people, God does give them a vision as a way of leading them to the next step. 
Peter's famous meat sheet and also Cornelius had a vision which brought them both together. But it's worth noting that where they do occur throughout the book of Acts, they are presented as unusual, as in not the normal sequence of events, and received as being something unexpected. But when we come to a topic like this, there are two key problems which people don't think about enough. One is you need to think really hard, is this really from God? And if it is really from God, have I interpreted it correctly? On this occasion, Paul has shared this vision with other mature believers and all came to the same conclusion, this is what God is is leading us to. Now, I imagine if Paul had shared it and they and someone said, no, I don't think that's God, I reckon they would have just stayed where they were. Or had Paul shared it with his peers and one of them says, I think this means there's a guy over there named Con whose lawn's getting a bit long and he's got a bung leg and he needs us to go mow his grass. And Luke says, no, I think there's food shortage, we better go take some bananas over there. If they're not united in it, they wouldn't have done anything. So by no means just get something and conclude by yourself, this is God, and immediately act. If ever anything comes like, make sure you take wise counsel with other Christians. This particular vision that Paul received was consistent with God's character. It was consistent with God's revealed will. And you can conclusively say, if anything is not meeting those two criteria, it's definitely not God. It was then confirmed by the many... And as a result of that, the gospel goes into Europe as the beginning of what we often call Paul's second missionary journey. And we'll see why God was saying, not Asia just yet, not Bithynia just yet, Macedonia is where I want you to go. So what? Now, through a series of unusual events, we learn quite a bit about God's leading by say we learn a lot about God's leading, this is not a go-to passage. If you want to get a go-to passage to think, how does God lead people? This is not the one to go to. It's not the standard by you think, okay, how does God lead people today? Because if that was the case, we'd all be sitting around thinking, God's not leading me. No, I've got no prophecy. I've got no vision. Clearly God's not leading me. And that would be a foolish way to live. God's primary means of communication is through his word, which he said has given us everything we need for life and godliness. But the thing I find most interesting is that God, in this passage, strangely prevents the advancement of the gospel to a particular area. He he stands in the way of something which to our mind and our wisdom seems like a really good godly pursuit. What would you do if something that you'd been praying about or you'd been thinking about and you'd concluded, this is what I would love to do, this is the direction I want to go, and you feel it's a real burden on your heart and it comes to nothing? How would you respond? Would it be, maybe I'm getting under some sort of attack? Would you conclude maybe it's because there's some sin in my life? Would you think maybe... God's not doing his bit, he's not helping me out. Have I done something wrong? All of which could be true. Have you ever thought, 
another possibility, maybe God just doesn't want me to do that, either right now or even ever. As far as we know, Paul's never given a reason why he's not to preach the word in Asia. He's not given a reason why you're not going to Bithynia. But we don't see Paul saying, God, you've called me to go preach the gospel to the nations. Get out of my way. He doesn't get angry with God. He doesn't question God and say, you've ruined my plans. In fact, the gospel did go to these same parts later on. Clearly, now it just wasn't God's timing. But what about if you've experienced that disappointment? You were so sure that God had a plan for you to be involved in a particular ministry or a particular path. You thought that at this stage in life that you would be doing certain things that have come to nothing. The God who knows best has reasons. It may be something that never eventuates for God's good purposes. It may be something that eventuates later down the track for God's good purposes, according to his time. But how we respond is a bit of a sign of how we think of God, isn't it? We could get bitter and angry and say, God, I had this good pursuit on my heart and it's just not happening. You're not coming to the party. Either God's either mean or weak. Or we could turn to God and say, God, I don't get this. Things are tough. It seemed like a good thing, but it's it's going nowhere. But I trust you're good. I trust you'll care for me. I trust that you provide. And I'm going to give you thanks, knowing that you are a loving Heavenly Father who loves me enough, even sometimes, to not give me what I think I want because you know better what I actually need. And you give us what we actually need in the right timing. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But one thing you can be confident of, his ways are better than our ways. His thoughts are better than our thoughts, no matter how good we might think they are. And we can take comfort in seeing this example here with Paul and Barnabas, the Spirit of Jesus is still actively guiding and leading people into faithful and fruitful gospel ministry. I was reading a book last week in preparation for our community group and there's a quote that was in there that has just been stuck in my head ever since. It says, If you have the thought to talk to somebody about Jesus, you can safely conclude it's not your flesh, it's not the world, it's not the devil. So where did it come from? If you have a desire to talk to someone about Jesus, your flesh is naturally scared and, and wants to turn away from it. Satan's not going to go, yeah, go share the gospel with someone. The world in which we live in is not going to encourage you to go do it. That may be God pleading on his heart because he he wants to lead you in that direction. Now, like Paul and Barnabas, it may be that you think, okay, this is this is where the person I'm going to, and it might not be that person. That might not be that might what you first comes to might might come to nothing. And it might mean just keep on trusting, doing the next thing, walking obediently with your God, 
and seeing where he would lead you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's encouraging to think of things like this happening in the life of Paul that we often look up to for the profound effect that he had in the formation of the church as you worked mightily through him. That at times even good, godly pursuits didn't work out the way which our human wisdom thought that they would. But Lord, we thank you that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts and that you are still actively guiding your people to bring about a strong, fruitful gospel ministry. Help us to trust you when things go well. Help us to trust you when we don't understand why they're not going so well. For you alone are good and you care and you provide what we need, not always what we want. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.